0: We're, we're continuing in a series looking at this idea of what, what are lies, common lies in our culture, sometimes in the church, about God because we've been seeing for the past uh, three, four weeks that it's really key, the, your, your conception of God, that you live out of that, you act and behave out of what you believe to be true about God, right? If, if you think he is... Um, kind of got his shoes on too tight and he's just sort of upset all the time, you're, you're going to be just waiting for him to hit you over the head with the two by four. Or anything negative that happens, you interpret it as, oh, this must be God's punishment because he's, he doesn't really like me. He's upset with me, right? If, if you have a view of God where he's this sort of um, indulgent grandparent, then things about your behavior probably aren't that big of a deal to you. The way that you live and you act, oh, it's not that big of a deal because, you know, God just wants me to have fun. So the, And we could give a hundred different other examples. We've been talking about that, especially week one. But the, the way in which I think about God, it's so key. And we see God constantly, even in Scripture, like in the Old Testament. Why is it that God is constantly saying, I'm not like that, I'm like this? And they kind of create their own God. They, they create a golden calf and because they want their conception of God. And he goes, I'm not like that. I'm like this. And so God is constantly this idea of self-revelation. He's constantly revealing who he is, what he's like. Because he knows, like A.W. Tozer was aware, that what comes to mind when you think about God it is the most important thing about you because it determines how you live and everything else about life. And so we've been looking at what are, what are some of these lies or misconceptions that I might have bought into a little bit, or that others do and we come in contact with. Um, tonight's one that I want to look at is um, this lie that God promotes sexism. God's a sexist. God's a, or even if he's not, he, he, he kind of leans towards the males, <laughs> um, his his laws and his self revelation and what he's done in history has sort of slighted women, and so kind of on a fair look of he just kind of likes guys better apparently, or he he kind of allows and promotes the mistreatment the exploitation of women. There was a um, I looked up online this week. Um, Never heard of this group before, but the Atheist Foundation of Australia. I suppose there's atheist foundations in every country, but of Australia. And there was an article in there in which this person was writing about women, women in the Bible. And these are some of the words that, that she penned. She said, the vast majority of people are Bible illiterates, which I would probably agree with that. They only hear the palatable verses from the pulpit and blindly accept that the Bible emanates goodness and is the word of God. In honesty, uh, uh, I'm sorry. Any honest thinking person reading through the Bible cannot ignore the blatantly misogyny, the blatant misogyny, and barbarity towards women. The eminent men of God, she put in quotes, who wrote the Bible, were the product of a patriarchal, tribal, violent, intolerant society. They reflect the ignorance and brutality of that society, and at the dawn of this new millennium. Fundamentalists, meaning meaning historical Orthodox Christians, insist that we should all abide by biblical law. It is no accident, she said, that from the very beginning the Bible cements women's inferiority or inferior status. And you've got other people too. Uh, you know, you think about Richard Dawkins. He he wrote the book a number of, a, a few years ago called The God Delusion. And, um, in fact, there's a, there's a book that I'm recommending. Uh, I think it's on the inside of your bulletin. It's called, Is God a Moral Monster? And Paul Copan goes through um, looking at all these Old Testament texts. And in, in one section, he doesn't only address the issue of women, but he addresses it there very, very well. And he addresses, uh, you know, what about the destruction of the Canaanites and all these other kind of challenges of, is God a moral monster? Because that phrase was coined by the famous atheist uh, Richard Dawkins, that he said, God is a moral monster, the kind of person that we see. um, In fact, he says, the the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. (laughs) He's jealous, jealous misogynistic, and cruel, and vindictive, and bloodthirsty, and all these sorts of things. But the misogyny piece is what I want to look at. Is that accurate? Is that accurate? And like maybe one of the lies we talked about two weeks ago, God's more tolerant today. God's kind of evolved. Yeah, I was kind of sexist back there, and I'm, I'm kind of more moderate now, as I've learned from the enlightened people of, of our day. So is this true? Does the Bible endorse things like polygamy, having many wives, or, or bigamy, just having two wives? Does it, does it endorse having concubines, these sort of second-tier uh, wives, or what about a bride price, or sort of this general oppression of women, because all of those things are in the Old Testament, they're there. Um, all of that happened, and as we think about even where we're at in culture, you know, the, uh, the Me Too, hashtag Me Too movement, or hashtag Time's Up, right, even in our own culture, as enlightened as we think we are about things, there's grave mistreatment of women, this is, this is nothing that was left behind in the ancient world. It's here today. It's a part of world history. So the question is, how does the Bible deal with it? We see how we deal with it in our modern world. I don't think it's too good. So does God promote, has God always promoted sexism? Um, there are a lot of narratives in the Old and the New Testament, and we'll get to some of those tonight, um, which are less than ideal for the treatment of women. Uh, in fact, there, there are some that are oftentimes completely demeaning, a tragic uh, exploiting. But before we jump into some of those, let's do what Jesus did when he was asked about things of how things ought to be. He said, well, let's go back to, to original intent. What, what was intended, let's start there. So take a look, at, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to the book of Genesis. We're going to look at just the, page one and page two a little bit here. Um, let me read for you Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and then kind of a parallel account in just the next page, chapter 2, verses eight, starting in verse 18. So Genesis 1, we read this. And again, this points us to the ideal view of women. Then God said, let us make man... And that's, you'll see in the context here, mankind is what it's referring to. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. And then in chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, it is not good. This is going back to this, this picture of, of um, Adam prior to Eve. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a, here's the word we're going to come back to. I will make him a helper as his complement, which is a key concept. So the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought them each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds of the sky, every wild animal. But for the man, no, there's that word again, no helper was found as his complement. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs closed up the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And then the man has the very first piece of poetry in all of Scripture. (laughs) He breaks into poetry upon seeing this woman. He says, this one at last. It's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man verse 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and the woman were naked, yet felt no shame. A couple observations, just as we think about this. Remember, this is this ideal picture of how God views women, of how women are ought to be viewed. Number one, it's, it's important to know that the woman reflects the divine image of God equally as the man does Which is really unique. Now, this was in the ancient Near Eastern world. Um, Any other any other cultural group, nation, they used the phrase "image of God," but it was only used for kings. The king was in the image of God. That's why when you would go to places, a king's image or statue would be carved out and put there. That's his image, showing this is where he rules. And God says, "I've created an image of God. It's male and female, and I'm putting it where I rule." On earth. So, total equality when it comes to image bearing nature. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 22, we see that Eve was taken from Adam's rib, from from his side. This denotes this idea of side by side, equal partnership in some task, in some endeavor. Uh, But it's not the picture of a superior and someone who's inferior, it's this picture of side by side partnership. And then in uh, chapter 2, verse 24, we see that the man is to leave his parents and cling to his wife as an equal partner. Now, one thing that I, I said a couple of minutes ago, I said, what about that word helper? That f- might feel a little demeaning, right? You know, I'll, uh, I made Adam, and I'll give you, you know, a little toady to kind of do your work for you, you know, and that sort of thing. Is, is that what he's saying by this word helper? Well, um, Adam's wife is called a suitable helper. The, the, the Hebrew word is ezer. Ezer. Now, lest you think that that's sort of this, oh gosh, how demeaning, God uses the word ezer to refer to himself in relationship to humanity all throughout Scripture. I'll give you just a couple different examples, and I think these might be up on the screen. Uh, Psalm 1014. Uh, the, the psalmist says, but you, speaking of God, but you yourself have seen... Um, I'm sorry... But you yourself have seen trouble and grief, observing it in order to take the matter into your hands. The, uh, the helpless entrusts himself to you, God. You are a easer to the fatherless. Or Psalm 3010, Lord, listen and be gracious to me. Lord, be my easer. Or Psalm 54, 4, God is my easer. The Lord is the sustainer of my life. You could give, I could go on and give more, but you get the idea, right? This idea of one who is an easer to another does in no way signifies inferiority because God himself says, I am your easer. It is one who comes alongside to partner in an effort in some sort of work. So woman is spoken of as man's easer. This there to be side by side Partners. So Genesis 1 and 2 clearly enforce that marriage is to be a partnership of two equals. And when it speaks of sex, it says, actually, you're going to become a, a one flesh union, meaning the man doesn't exist anymore just as the man. He's now this new organism. He has his wife, and they're, they make up something totally new together. And so this idea is that they're, they're one flesh, and that sex is to be enjoyed within the safety of a lifelong monogamous, heterosexual marriage. That's the ideal picture. <laughs> That's what's painted at the, very, at the very beginning. Now, one of the great denigrations of women in the Bible is polygamy. One man who marries multiple women, and the, the narratives kind of tell the story. Um, anytime, just kind of as a note, anytime you're reading narrative... Um, narrative communicates differently than, like, uh, law, meaning, like, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do that. You know what I mean by that? Narrative, the authors um, give evaluations, but they don't come out and say it. They don't say, that was bad, what he did. They show you through the story, look what happens when you do this, and they go, oh, that was bad. (laughs) Look what happens when you do this. Oh, that was good. So narrative, the author wants the reader to to enter the story to see what happens when a person, when a man, acquires many wives for himself. How does his his life go? (laughs) And what happens? Oh, it's filled with strife. It's filled with infighting. It's filled with all of these problems. Oh, that's not good. But that's how narrative works. So as you read narrative, which is vast majority of the Old Testament, you have to be looking for that. How does the author trying what's he trying to get me to see in this passage so as we think about this though uh polygamy like it's all over in the new testament right like there are tons of examples of polyg. i mean like the great patriarchs you know abraham isaac jacob all polygamists (laughs) well abraham was at least a bigamist he had he had two um but the other ones it's like and then what about the kings what about the rulers of israel I mean, what do you think of when you think of those guys? David. Yeah, tons. Solomon? I mean, he like hit the penultimate, you know. Just literally hundreds. And so we get to this place where um, uh, it's, it's so dangerous, it's so destructive. But here's what, remember narrative. Listen to how the author, the author listen to how he first introduced polygamy into the human record here. So after the very first murder, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, Cain kills his brother Abel. And we read right after that of Cain's descendants. And Cain's descendants function as a, as a transition to the flood. Okay, So there's Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel's story, and then all of Cain's descendants, and then it gets to this flood account. Well, what's really interesting, all of these descendants, you, you get down to the very last one, uh, of Cain's descendants, and it's this guy named Lemech. Lamech. Listen listen to what it says. He's this really nasty guy. Um, Genesis 4, 19, and also verses 23 and 24, it says, this is, this is all it tells us about Lamech. It really tells us two things. It says, Lamech took two wives for himself, one named Adah and the other named Zilha. Verse 23, Lamech said to his to wives Ada and Zilhah, hear my voice wives of Lemek pay attention to my words for i killed a man for wounding me a young man for striking me if cain is to be avenged 7 times over then for lemek it will be 77 times we only read two things about him he's repeating the sin of his ancestor cain by doing what murder but then the author wants us to see, and now he's going further. What's the other thing we learned about him? He's he, he's he's abandoned God's plan of monogamy for the beauty of image bearers together. <laughs> he's he's done what his ancestor did, Cain did by by murder. But now he's adding by abandoning the most basic institution for these image bearers of God. I'm going to take two wives. I'm going to do it my way. Um, And Lamech, Lamech, his son was Noah. And Noah, we read that, we get to the point, and God says this in Genesis 6, where the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth, that every scheme his mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time. And then he says, "I'm I'm, I'm I'm gonna wipe this out. And just Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives, I'm going to start over, kind of a reboot, so it's, it's clear that polygamy is wrong, um, not God's intent. So here's the question. Why does it still go on constantly? I mean, God's pretty clear. This is not his intent. It's evil. It's wrong. Why does it go on? Because people are sinful. Period. <laughs> That's it. I mean, we could kind of go home. That's sort of the simple answer to it. Fast, fast forward. God has established Israel as a nation. He's rescued them out of Egypt. They have become numerous. Um, And the people demand a king. Do you remember this? Because they're they're led by a prophet, but they kind of say, all the other... Countries, they've got kings, and that kind of looks cool. I like that idea. I want that. So they demand a king. It's not God's ideal. He says, all right, all right, if you want a king, I will give you a king, but it will not be that great for you. It will not go well. He's, he's going to exploit you. That's what kings do. <laughs> um, taxes are going to be through the roof. He's going to take your maidservants and manservants, and it's going to cost you a lot. And what's interesting now, nobody will be more inclined, this is true throughout time, it's true today, Whoever is the king, whoever has, has absolute power, no one is going to be more inclined to polygamy than that person. Why? Well, at least power. I mean, if a man has power, he's going to do what he wants. And his sexual prowess is not going to stop at one woman, so it'll be many. But also, kings make allegiances with other nations. And the way you make an allegiance with another nation in this day and age, what day and age was, you, you marry the daughter of that king. That way you know, you know it's, okay, I'm not going to go in and raid because my daughter will die. It's this sort of symbolic way of saying we have a truce. So kings are, no one's going to be more susceptible to polygamy than kings. And because of that, God sets this up. Listen to Deuteronomy 17.7, sorry, 17.17. God warns the king this. He says, however, he says, okay, I'll give you what you want. You want the king? It's not best. It's not going to go great. I'll do it. But here's the thing. The king must not acquire, and listen to the different things, and think about the kings. Think about Solomon in this one. Uh, The king must not acquire many horses for himself or send back a people to go to Egypt to acquire many horses, for the Lord has told you you are never to go back there again. And then it says, He, the king, must not acquire multiple wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. How many of those things did Solomon do, if you know the life of Solomon? <laughs> yeah, like all, right? Oh, sometimes sometime go to the book of First Kings and start reading in First Kings, and what the author is doing, the, the narrator, is, he, he, he is he's like writing an expose on how Solomon broke Deuteronomy 17, 17. That's just what he's doing. He's just saying, he's like slowly going through and saying, um, sort of denouncing Solomon's uh, leadership and spiritual qualification. I mean, from the very start of Solomon's reign, he violated all of these. Um, in, in Kings, chapter three and chapter 11, he married Pharaoh's daughter, a lot of other foreign wives. Chapter 10, he accumulated horses and chariots. Chapter 10, hoarded silver and gold. Chapter three, made an alliance with Egypt. Wow, wow. <laughs> So here's the point, you cannot use a great, great, whatever you want to call it, leader or something, you can't use a figure from the Old Testament, a patriarch, a king, one of Israel's leaders, whatever, um, one of these heroes, we can't use that as an excuse for well that, that was okay, because what you see God doing is constantly saying, it's not okay, it's not, now they keep doing it, but he stated pretty clearly, this is not what I have intended. Um, now, what about, so as we think about polygamy, but what about some of the laws in the Old Testament that, that seem to kind of um, assume that a lot of the ways in which women are treated is sort of condoned or acceptable in some way, maybe kind of like their property. Let me, let me read for you one of these laws, and you'll, you'll kind of wince. I mean, you'll know why. Uh, Exodus 21, 7 through 11. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, right there, you're like, what? what? Yeah, I know. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, meaning the master like, refuses to go through with a possible engagement kind of thing. Um, he, the master, must, uh, I'm sorry, he must let her be redeemed which is to say, come back home to the, to the father. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, like to marry her, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she's free to go without any payment of money. Man, that seems... I mean, it's a law about how to do polygamy. It's a law about how to do kind of selling, selling women. Isn't, isn't, that, um, isn't that a problem? Didn't that go against everything that we just talked about? The, so there, there are two kinds of laws in the Old Testament. Um, there's apodictic laws. Apodictic law is... Or you could just say like an absolute law. Do this, don't do that. Okay, we know what those are, right? Um, honor the sabbath okay it's just an absolute law and then there's casuistic laws or what you could call case laws case laws are really really different case laws they they always um, they start with some sort of conditional clause they start with words like if or when you know what i mean by that If this happens, it's it's talking, and they describe a particular situation, you know, they describe the if this, and then there's some um, statement, and that doesn't happen, here's the consequence. Okay, that's casuistic laws or case law. Um, Let me give you an example of a case law, a clearer one. This is just the very next chapter, not Exodus 21, but Exodus 22, verse 1. Uh, When a man steals an ox or a sheep and butchers it or sells it, he must repay five cattle for the ox or four sheep for the sheep. Does this assume it's okay for a person to steal an ox? But it says when it happens. So it seems like it's approving of it, right? Uh, If a man sells his daughter, oh, that's clearly approving of selling daughters. When a man steals, when a man does this sort of thing. See, case law does not endorse the practice. Does that make sense? We have tons of case laws in America. None of them endorse the offenses that are being addressed, but they give guidelines saying, when this happens, here's how you handle it. See, these case laws don't assume that the described state of affairs is ideal or anywhere close to it. Uh, If two men quarrel, this happens all the time, if two men quarrel and they fight, if a man strikes another man, and it's dot, dot, dot. These are examples of these case laws. Um, but these case laws instruct what should be done under certain inferior, broken, messed up conditions. If a man sells his daughter. So now, why not just say, just don't do it? <laughs> why not just say that? Well, Jesus actually addressed that very issue. Um, Jesus was asked about case law in regard to um, divorce. In Matthew 19, Jesus is being questioned about the case law of Deuteronomy 24, which is about divorce. It's a, if you get a divorce, make sure you do it this way, okay? That's the case law. Listen to uh, Matthew 19, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. When Jesus had finished this instruction, he departed from Galilee and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They want to test him about some case law. From the Torah, they asked, um, "If it's lawful for a man to divorce, or I'm sorry, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Because that's the big debate: is how do you interpret Genesis or uh, Deuteronomy 24? Is it any grounds? Is it some grounds? And there was you know different debates. So they want to know, what do you think? And then in, interesting, what he says, he goes back to what we started with tonight. Haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And it says, then he also went on to say, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. The two will become one flesh, one organism, one new life. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. Now listen to their question. This is the assumption that many of us had when we read this, when a man sells his daughter. (laughs) They said, well, why then did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? And look what he responds. He says, he told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Why? Because of the hardness of your hearts. Because you're just a doggone sinner. And you're going to blow and you're going to mess up and you're not going to obey God. <laughs> so God wants to put in place something to protect the person who could potentially be exploited. That's case law. That's why there's all these, when a man exploits a woman like this, God has said don't do it. He said that a billion times. But their hearts are hard. They're just going to keep doing it. So he says, I'm going to put in laws to protect the person who will be exploited every single time because I know how it works. You can't just send her away. You're going to take care of her the rest of your life. Is that ideal for her? Nope. But what's the other option? Sending her out, there's no social security system, there's no welfare, there's no government. God sets up case laws with broken, hard-hearted, sinful, evil people in order to protect the most vulnerable person in the situation. God's laws in the Mosaic Covenant, they're very realistic. They, they, they take into account the brokenness and the sinfulness of, of all of humanity. Because they know that there are going to be many people who are going to be really selfish and take advantage of other people. And so all of these laws, and if you read them, if you read them, that's why I say, if you read it in context, if you understand the culture, if you see what's going on, if you see what the other option is, these laws, like I said, they're designed to protect the vulnerable, which is usually the women in the case. See, God was not in favor of exploiting women. In fact, if, if you, you can read it over and over again, go all throughout the Old Testament, especially the prophets, but all throughout. And look whose look who's side God says he's seriously on. And it's always the most vulnerable. Uh, and it's not just women, like they're always vulnerable. He says, um, I, I care about the widows. See, widows is a key concept in this ancient world, because like I said, there's no welfare system, there's no social services, there's no safety net to catch people. Um, widows are in the worst possible condition you could imagine, because they have no one to take care of them, nothing there. And what does God say constantly, constantly? Listen to some of these. Exodus 22:22: 22, 22, "You must not mistreat any widow or fatherless child." Deuteronomy 10:18. Um, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. Deuteronomy 14, 29. Then the Levite, who has no portion or inheritance among you, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied, and the Lord your God will bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Deuteronomy 24, 17. Do not deny justice to a foreigner or fatherless child, and do not take a widow's garment as security. Deuteronomy 24, 19. When you reap the harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, do not go back and get it. It is to be left for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. Widows were the most easily exploited group in the ancient world, most the easiest, and yet God said they're the ones that I'm on their side. See, you can't tell me that God is in favor of exploitation of women if he goes after the most vulnerable and says, those are the ones that I, I, I vote with them. I'm on their side of things. Later on in Israel's history as Israel was unfaithful to this Mosaic covenant, they didn't keep it, they worshiped other gods, they did all these things. It's interesting that what, <clears throat> this, this image that, uh, especially the prophets, you read these guys, the prophets, Israel falls away and it's, it's broken and it breaks up and then these prophets arise. And one of the most common images that they use is, is this idea of a, a husband who's longing for a faithful wife, just one, only has one, and he says, you're that wife, but you're never faithful. You're always running around. Sometime read Ezekiel chapter 16, if we had time, I'd read it. It's this beautiful, kind of graphic, but beautiful picture of God telling Israel what they're like. As this little girl, he said he found this little girl naked, umbilical cord not even cut, sitting in its blood out in the desert. And he, he took it and cleaned it and gave it a home and it grew up. And he came back years later and was just beautiful young woman and he said but but she was naked she all these kind of cultural signs of shame and he says and so I covered her and I made a covenant with her and I loved her and I gave her all this jewelry and all these things and then she melted down my jewelry to make gods and went around prostituting herself. But he's always saying he's using that original picture of Genesis saying that's what I want for us. You know that image that was so beautiful and it's been so perverted and so distorted. That's what I want. It was this beautiful image of adoring a woman, of a man loving, caring, sacrificing for a woman. So a final question tonight, and maybe kind of the ultimate one, is what was Jesus' attitude about women? Because see, Jesus, Jesus paints himself as the ideal Israelite. He's the, he, he's the ideal Israel. All the other Israelites, they failed, they couldn't do it. He's the ideal Israelite. He's the ideal human. He's what it looks like to walk perfectly with God, perfectly in faith and trust with him. But he's also the exact representation, we read, of God himself. So, man, if I, if I knew what Jesus' attitude towards women is, it tells me what the ideal human would think about it and what God himself thinks about it. Now, to give you some context, Jesus lives many years later. Okay? He's in the first century A.D. There, uh, to give you kind of some context of what was the, at least a generally accepted view of women in, in that time period among Jews, let me, let me quote for you some words from Ben Syriac. Um, ben Syriac was uh, an aristocratic uh, scholar uh, of Jerusalem and he lived in like the 100s BC, er, early 2nd century. And he was an author and wrote and very well respected. His writings are still around today. You can find them. For, for Ben Syriac, um, women could be good wives and mothers, and they're to be respected in those roles. But he said that if you don't like your wife or you don't trust her, keep records of the supplies that you issue her. This is in Ben Sirach 7, 26 and 42, 6. He said, don't ever deed her any property during your lifetime and do not let her financially support you. That's chapter 33, 20 and 25. Women are responsible, he said, for sin coming into the world and their spite is unbearable. Sirach 25, 13. Don't laugh at that one, guys. He said, daughters are kind of a total loss, and they're a constant potential source of shame. Chapter 7, 24, chapter 22, 3, chapter 26, 9. Women only have significance in their relationship to men, and in Ben Sira's list of heroes of faith, he records only males, chapter 44 through 50. This is the view. Now, this was maybe, this was Ben Sirach's lowest point when he spoke of women this way. This is in chapter 24, 12. He says, do not sit down with the woman. For moth comes out of cloth and a woman's spite out of a mouth, out of a woman. A man's spite is preferable to a woman's kindness. Women give, give rise to shame and, repro- and reproach. So here's the question. Did Jesus reinforce this sort of attitude about women? First, consider this fact, and this is shocking, not for us today, for the first century world it is. Let me give you four significant texts in scripture which show how, how Jesus invited women in in a culture which was very much pushing them out. Acts chapter 9, um, mm-hmm. this is the fledging little church going, and we read of one, one woman named Tabitha, and it says, in Joppa there was a Disciple named Tabitha. I won't read the whole section for the sake of time. But what's interesting to note: only place this occurs in the New Testament, the word "disciple" is in the it's in the feminine. It's saying this woman is a disciple of of Jesus. Um, Matthew chapter twelve, verse forty eight. This is uh, the context, this is where Jesus is speaking in a house and his family thinks his mother and brothers come to physically restrain him and bring him home because they think he's crazy. And so they go and they can't get to him, so they send word up through the crowd, your, your mother and brothers are out here, they want to talk to you. And this is what we read. Um, but he replied to the one who told him, he said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now listen to this part, stretching out his hands toward his disciples. So who's he addressing? he addressing? talking about? His disciples, okay? Um, He said, here are my mother and my brothers. Is it only men out there? Yeah, these are my brothers and my mother. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, that person is my brother and my sister and my mother. The text clearly tells us that Jesus' disciples, he said my disciples, were a mixed crowd, male and female. Now, number three, Uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 1, we're we're told that uh, uh, in verse 1, soon after he, Jesus, was traveling from one town and village to another, preaching and telling the good news of the kingdom of God, the 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, Mary, called uh, Magdalene, uh, Joanna, um, Herod, Stewart, Susanna, and many others, listen to this, who were supporting them from their own possessions. A couple things fascinating about it. Number one, in the ancient world, men and women might travel together, but at nighttime, the women were required to stay with relatives. They weren't just staying in the, in the town. This doesn't seem to be happening. He also, Luke points out and underscores, do you know who was responsible for the Jesus movement? It was a bunch of women who, out of their own resources that they had control over, were supporting the Jesus movement. Luke's not embarrassed by it. He's not embarrassed by that. He tells him, that. Remember Ben Syriac said, don't ever let a woman pay for your stuff, right? Because you have too much dignity. (laughs) Did Jesus reinforce that same attitude? And the last one, Luke 10, 38. While they were traveling, he entered a village and a woman named Martha, this is speaking of Jesus, um, welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary. Here's Here's the piece to underline. and We'll come back to it. Mary, who, quote, sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by many tasks. And she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me alone to serve? So uh, tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried. One of my kids the other day said they were, you know, the old Brady Bunch, Martha, Marsha, Marsha. They read this verse and said that. I was like, where did you hear that from? Uh, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will be not, not be taken away from her. Now, we oftentimes read this passage that it's like, um, you know, she's the busybody, and Mary's just sort of like the intellectual one. No, 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 no. It, she's not just upset because Mary's not helping in the kitchen. She's upset because Mary seems to be doing something culturally inappropriate. The phrase that's used here, sitting at the feet of Jesus... Paul uses that exact same phrase when he says, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. This is technical language for being a student of a rabbi, being an apprentice, being a disciple. What's shocking is she's acting as though she can be an apprentice, a student of a rabbi, a woman. And Martha is, in her culture, appropriately incensed by that. That's not appropriate for you to take that role as a female. And Jesus says, that role won't be taken away from her. <laughs> he completely accepts uh, Mary as a student. There's, um, a interesting, I was reading this week, and I, I had honestly, I had never realized this. I had never seen it. Um, there's, there's one book, it's a fantastic book. It's called uh, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And this gentleman who's, who grew up in the Middle East, he's writing about the role of women and Jesus and all this. And he says, um, he says, have you noticed that Jesus' teachings are geared toward men and women? And um, he said, he, he points out, he goes through in 38 teachings. Jesus did a lot of paired teachings. Like he would say, he'd give one story and another story. And, I, and, I, and I'd never seen this before, but he says, look at how many of the stories. He kind of 38. One is a female, anal- an analogy that a woman would get, an analogy that a man would get. He said things like when he's talking about this new kingdom, he says, You don't sew a patch, you know, uh, new cloth onto, or what is it, new cloth onto old cloth, and then the wineskins one. And he pointed out and he said, Who's, who's going to grasp, who, who, do, who does the sewing? It's going to be the women. Who does, who, you know, who does the skin? Well, that's going to be the men. And he went through all these examples of Jesus' two examples of, you know, the woman who loses the coin and then the man who does this. The, and it was this male-female. And his point was this. Jesus, as the wonderful, brilliant teacher, knows his audience. And his audience was mixed. And he didn't want to just connect with guys. <laughs> he was teaching so women would go, oh, I get that about the kingdom. And he wanted guys to go, oh, I get that about the kingdom. But he taught differently because they had different experiences. What's Jesus' attitude toward women? He wants them in just as much. When, in the New Testament, when it speaks about our role, men and women, it says, we are all, are, are all royal priests, including women, serving as priests. Now in the Old Testament, women couldn't serve as priests, but most men couldn't serve as priests. It was only Levites. And he says, it's everyone. Now, women, men have have this equal status before me, and an equal call on their lives to serve me. In fact, in the New Testament, when when Paul talks about how men and women should interact, and obviously this is something we could unpack a lot more, but when he he talks about a you know a man um, caring for his wife, loving his wife, he says a woman should submit to her husband. <laughs> But then he says, and a husband should love his wife as what? As Christ loved the church. What did Christ do for the church? He died for it, for crying out loud. So, boy, am I going to have a problem being submissive to someone who will die for me, who will run off a cliff for me? No, not not so much. (laughs) He's going back to that original beautiful picture. And when Jesus, talk, you know what Jesus talked about constantly? Jesus would have parties a lot. He would, he would be celebrating. Anytime he was, he was criticized about it, one of the most common things he said is, he goes, hey, the friends of the, of the groom can't you know, weep while he's here. They'll weep later after the, after the bridegroom goes. But he, he spoke of himself as the bridegroom constantly. And he, and he painted this picture that he said, one day I'm going to come for my bride, The church. In fact, some of the last words of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 19, verse six through eight, the author says this in, in this visionary, amazing experience that he has. He says, "Then I heard something like a like a voice of a vast multitude, like a sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of loud thunder, and this is what it was saying: Hallelujah." Or let God be praised because our Lord God is almighty, He has begun to reign. So, this is a picture of when God's kingdom is fully instantiated here, when His kingdom truly comes new creation, new heavens, new earth. He says, Let us be glad, rejoice, and give Him glory because the marriage of the Lamb and he, Jesus has spoken of the Lamb all throughout this the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife which later he says those are the saints, those are God's people. That's his his church. His wife has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure represents their righteous acts. And in verse 17, it says, both the spirit and the bride, that's us, universal, all of church, all of God's people, the spirit and the bride say, come, come on, please come. Please come. Waiting. Please come. Anyone who hears should say, come. And the one who is thirsty should come. Whoever desires should take the living water as a gift. Wow. That's what we're waiting for. That's our hope. And what Jesus is, do you know what the hope is? You remember that original picture? Man and woman and the one flesh created this beautiful intimacy and partnership. And it's awesome. And it's beautiful. And there's all this broken human history afterwards that was a picture, that was a pointer to what I had in mind for you all the way along. Not with a guy or a girl, not a, With me, Jesus says. I'm gonna come to you as the bride, groom, and I'm going to rescue you, I'm, and I'm gonna adore you like you've never been adored. I'm gonna love you like you've never been loved. I'm gonna, I'm gonna cherish you. I'm gonna exalt you. I'm gonna call you to greatness because you're my bride, because that's what, women are called to, to greatness, to beauty. And there's nothing demeaning about being female because we, the church, are called the female bride of Jesus. And we accept that we step into this submissive role of saying, absolutely, because you will die for me. You have died for me. So I will serve you. I will follow after you. And that strength, Jesus says, that's Beautiful. Utterly beautiful. And so we finish with these words where he says, um, And let the one who is thirsty come. And so that's what we're going to do right now. We're thirsty. We're thirsty for the bridegroom. And so this evening, as we move into a time of communion, we're going to have a worship song uh, as we do every single week. There's tables around the room, and you, you know where to go to get the, the bread, which is a picture of our groom's death his broken body that he shed because he would do anything for us. And his blood shed, making a new way of engaging God, a new covenant. And so we're a part of that covenant. We're the bride of Christ. And so this evening, as you take it, maybe it's just, it's a time for you to remember how much God cherishes and loves and adores you because he did this for you and for me. And to accept and embrace your role as the bride of Christ and everything that that means. And what a beautiful thing. And that we say, come Lord Jesus, amen.